Hi there, you're listening to What Are You Going To Do With That? The podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, a PhD candidate, and in this podcast, I'm introducing you to early career researchers and the stories behind how they got to where they are now. A very interesting story will be told today by our guest, Dr. Ido Kilovati. Ido earned his LLB from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and an LLM from the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. His SJD was done at the Georgetown University Law Center. Following that, he was a cyber fellow at the Center for Global Legal Challenges at Yale Law School. And at the same time, Ido was a cyber fellow at the Center for Cyber Law and Policy at the University of Haifa. Now, I feel like I'm forgetting something about the Minerva Center. Yeah, so I was uh, affiliated with the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions back in 2014-15. I was still an SJD candidate at the time, and uh, the Minerva Center offered me a very generous grant to do my research on cyberspace and international law. So that was a really good experience working there. And there you go. That's how we got a connection. Perfect. Cool. So right now, you are a Frederick Dorert and Zedelis Family Fund Assistant Professor of Law at the College of Law at the University of Tulsa. And you have taught computer crime law, cybersecurity law and policy, technology law and international law. And your specific areas of interest include cybersecurity law, internet governance and domestic and global technology regulation. And your work has appeared in various journals, including the Harvard National Security Journal, the Michigan Telecommunications and Technology Law Review, and even more. Forthcoming, I noticed, are an article in the Berkeley Technology Law Journal and a book in the Ohio State Law Journal called Freedom to Hack. And you've also written op-eds and essays for the Harvard Law Review blog, The Lawfare, Just Security, Wired, and TechCrunch. So... Hi, Ido, again. We're happy to have you here as our guest today. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. We're not only doing this chat online due to the coronavirus situation, but also because we're far apart. We have an eight-hour time difference, which is why I'm having my amaretto, and you're actually having... I'm having uh, a caramel latte and uh, some water with uh, lemon. Oh, that sounds very good, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. All right, let me pour some on this side of the camera. And you should start drinking yours before it gets cold, too. Sure. There we go. All right. Well, no matter what's in there, cheers. Cheers. Before I start asking some few a few short questions, I really have to know what is a cyber fellow exactly? Because it almost sounds like you're a robot researcher. Yeah, uh, it was not too far from that, actually. Um, A cyber fellow is basically a position they created at the Center for Global Legal Challenges for a research scholar to basically join them for two years to do research on cybersecurity law, U.S. and international, and basically work to bridge the gaps between legal scholars and computer science experts. And I spent two years there being a cyber fellow. Okay, thanks for the explanation. Sure. Okay, so now I'm ready for the short questions. Number one, what's your favorite cuisine? 
Uh, Japanese, anything Japanese, sushi, and uh, even beyond sushi, just any Japanese restaurant would be best. That would make you happy. Yeah. All right. Have you watched the documentary series Tiger King on Netflix? You know, I had to ask you, being in Oklahoma right now. Yeah, of course I have. Um, it's the one show that kind of made Oklahoma famous, but not for the good reasons. Uh, so I had had to watch it, of course. So another normal question then. How well do you know your neighbors, assuming that you live on campus? I don't live on campus. I just moved to a new residential complex last month. I actually don't know any of my neighbors here, uh, especially now with quarantine, stay-at-home orders and stuff. It's just difficult to meet neighbors. And even if you see them, the last thing you want to do is say hi and have a conversation. So you just you kind of know them by face, but you don't know their names or anything else. Okay. And there's no balcony interaction either? Nope. I don't have a balcony here. Some apartments do, um, and I kind of envy them for having a balcony, but there's no balcony action whatsoever. All right. When you were a boy, what did you want to become when you grew up? Uh, probably a bus driver. I know it. You know it would be. Oh. It would. It would come as a surprise to the listeners. But you know, as a boy, when I was six, seven, eight, I found buses quite fascinating and cool. And I just wanted to be a bus driver because you know it was such a powerful career, in my in my opinion back then. But obviously, you know, very quickly I realized bus driver that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> not not for you. Yeah. You wouldn't go back to that either. No. All right. What do you wish that you had more time for? Probably more time to uh, to read some books, to watch uh, sci-fi TV shows, to have more time uh, to exercise. Just more time for recreational things. Okay. Sounds legit. Would it be more exercise or more more TV watching though? Most likely. I would try to balance my uh, t my time uh, between uh, entertainment and exercise. I think that sounds like a healthy combination, and we're all trying that. Yeah. Right. Cool. Okay, that was the last short question. So now we can move on. Um, as I've mentioned before, you've already been all over the place. And tell me, how did you get from a bachelor in Jerusalem to a master's in Berkeley, California? Yeah, it's quite an interesting story, I think. I graduated from the Hebrew University with an LLB. And, you know, 90% of the graduates just go into legal practice. They work in law firms, they work for the government, they work for courts. Um, so I I was an intern at a law firm in Israel, and I worked there for a year. I did the bar exam in Israel, and then I just kind of realized I that I don't feel like practicing law. Did you not enjoy it? I I enjoyed the subject matter, so I enjoyed the law, and I enjoyed learning about how I can use the law to help my clients and fight injustice. The, the problem I think was more cultural. So I just, I didn't feel like I belong 
in the culture of um, of law practice. Uh, it just wasn't. It, it didn't feel right. That kind of led me to decide maybe uh, pursue a, an advanced degree in law somewhere else. So at first I was actually considering Europe because, you know, Europe is just closer to Israel, probably uh, not as not as expensive as, as American legal education. So I looked at a few schools in Europe and I also visited one of these schools for a class and uh, it also didn't feel right. It was Europe that didn't feel right. Yeah, it was Europe, specifically the Netherlands. Again, you know, a, oh. <laughs> a cultural, just a major cultural difference, I think. And that has led me to consider the U.S. as my next stop. And I looked at a few schools in the U.S., a few LLM programs. I applied to uh, several LLM programs based on geographical preference and subject matter match, and eventually decided to enroll um, in the Berkeley LLM program. And that's where my career as a legal scholar kind of took off. And like you already mentioned, I understand that schools in the US are much more expensive than in Israel or in Europe. So. How did you manage that? Did you manage to land a scholarship? Some schools offer generous scholarships or tuition waivers. I was fortunate to have my tuition somewhat uh, subsidized or covered by by other entities. So the Minerva Center was was one of them. Loans, you know, is another option for for students. It's not ideal, but it could work. For some of us. In the meantime, you were not allowed to work in the States, were you? Um, you're not supposed to work, uh, but the, the visa sometimes allows you to work for the university. If you can land a job, a part-time job with the university, you can work for the university. I personally was not working either at Berkeley or Georgetown, uh, but while I was at Georgetown, I was... Uh, participating uh, as, as a researcher with the Minerva Center. So uh, that kind of helped me cover the expenses for the school. Right. Okay. And it's an ongoing process. That's fair enough. At least you did find the help that you needed to get where you are now. Yeah. And what about uh, the, the topic now? So you decided to quit working in the field in Israel because you really didn't like it and you didn't feel like you were in in the right place. And how about California then, despite all of the struggles? Well, I mean, I already kind of had a feeling at the time that I would probably want to teach instead of just practicing law. So um, California was very different than everything I, I knew. Um, it was a painful transition. Um, but it did feel a little bit more um, more aligned with what I was what I was looking for at the time. As if you were on the right track. It did feel that way. Yes. Okay. Maybe not it yet, but definitely on the way. Yeah. And then the way continued from the west coast to east coast, from Berkeley to Georgetown. 
as you've mentioned. How did that happen and how was that transfer? Yeah, so that's an unusual story, I think, because a lot of many of the LLM students are, um, you know, if they're interested in pursuing a PhD and SJD, they usually just stay at the same school because they already have a relationship with the faculty, they already have an advisor, they already have mentors. So a lot of the LLMs, uh, if they wish to continue with an SJD, they stay at the same school. Um, so my story is a little different because I graduated with an LLM from Berkeley, but then I pursued an SJD at Georgetown. And the main reason for that, well, actually, there are two reasons. The first reason is that I applied for the Berkeley JSD program. Um, I did have a relationship with a mentor who was my uh, thesis advisor. Um, but there were all sort of administrative issues that prevented me from attending uh, the Berkeley JSD program. Um, first and foremost, I was never admitted to the Berkeley JSD program, maybe because there was no alignment of subject matter interests. So, you know, I'm interested in one thing, but there's no faculty member who's necessarily 100% interested in the same thing. So there's just no uh, chemistry. And it was an issue that kind of pushed me out to look for for an alternative school for, for a different program. The second reason would be that I was admitted to the Georgetown SJD program and I was uh, admitted with a generous scholarship, which you know tips the scales given how expensive um, US legal education is. And the, the faculty advisor who decided to admit me was Rosa Brooks, who is uh, one of the most famous and well-known international law scholars in the United States and abroad. So in a way, it was a no-brainer for me. That was pretty cool. You had to do it. <laughs> it was pretty cool and it was uh, very convincing. Uh, so, you know, Berkeley rejected me. I had nothing to do there. And their Georgetown wanted me with this very cool advisor with a scholarship. So, and it's Washington, D.C. So there, there wasn't a lot of time for hesitation. Just had to say yes. All right. What was exactly the topic of your PhD? Do you want to tell me a little bit about how that went? Yeah. So the, so the, the overarching theme of my dissertation was cyberspace or cyber conflict and international law. And uh, the reason why I don't have just one topic is because the Georgetown SJD uh, encouraged its students to write multiple papers that eventually constitute your uh, dissertation. So I had a series of four papers that were part of this dissertation. So the topic is cyber conflict and international law. I had one paper looking at international humanitarian law, specifically how the concept of attacks applies to uh, cyber attacks. Uh, so cyber attacks are a lot different than any, uh, any other kind of weapon. 
So there's a lot of room for interpretation and sort of looking at how cyber attacks are different than the weapons that we've known up until now. And was this the topic that Berkeley was not interested in? I wouldn't say Berkeley was not interested. I just think that the uh, the faculty members I, I was I was talking to um, just were doing different things. It was not within their scope of research interest. Still, I think it's their loss. <laughs> yeah. So that was one paper, but there were three other papers, sort of one looking at election interference and their norm of non-intervention in international law. Uh, there was another paper looking at espionage and whether espionage in cyberspace specifically is unlawful under international law. And uh, there was the final paper was looking at civilian uh, direct participation in hostilities in cyberspace. So basically a lot of very traditional international law topics, but just looking at it from the lens of cyberspace and how cyberspace kind of changes everything. All right. Sounds like very timely topics because you were all writing all of this during also the last presidential elections in the United States, I assume. Well, so the the election interference piece was the last among the four. Uh, it's the most recent one. And that was published in 2018. It was written in 2017 um, when uh, election interference in the 2016 U.S. election was already kind of well-known, well-documented. Um, so it's, it's the most recent among the four. And also still relevant because the next elections are this year. Yeah, it's, it's still very relevant. Uh, there are some indications that certain countries are attempting to interfere with the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Um, and there's actually a shorter piece coming out uh, where I kind of talk about the 2020 U.S. presidential election and potential interference. Forthcoming where? It's just actually forthcoming on the University of Tulsa website. It's just, okay. you know, meet this faculty member who does all this fascinating research on election interference. He has a lot to say about it. Well, I'll check it out. Don't worry. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so I'm actually interested in these op-eds and essays that you've been writing. Was that something you already started during the PhD? Yeah, so, you know, I when I was still an SJD candidate, I kind of realized that not a lot of people read uh, legal research. So, you know, it's, it's a sad reality, but it was my observation that legal scholars kind of speak in a bubble, in an echo chamber sometimes. And it was really important for me to get my research out there, to share my research with the broader public, share my research with the average reader. Um, and so op-eds and sort of shorter pieces, shorter articles was the way to go. Uh, that was uh, easier to write, easier to publish, and it attracted a lot more readers who would otherwise never read about legal scholarship. What are platforms that you use for these? What would you recommend at least to look into? So it really depends on your subject matter. But I was uh, back in the time, and I'm still working with some of these platforms. 
So just security, lawfare, wired, uh, also the traditional news websites, uh, uh, The Hill, uh, Washington Post, uh, New York Times. Just aim as high as you can and uh, distribute it broadly until someone is interested and ready to publish it. Okay, so it also helps your academic career. It helps for visibility. It helps to show that you can cro- you you can talk across disciplines. You can talk also across sectors. So you're not only speaking to other law professors and legal scholars, but you're also talking to the general population, the the, the average readers who may be interested in your research but otherwise have no way of learning about it. So you would recommend others to definitely look into this option? I would recommend because I think that it just exposes your research and promotes it among non-legal scholars. Then the last question regarding the PhD, at least the position. When you were doing your MA still in Berkeley, you said that it was a struggle because it was a difficult transfer. Right. But in the end, you found your place and, and you said you were on track into the right direction. But it was still not really what you were looking for, right? So when you were doing the PhD, now on the other side of the US in Georgetown, did you feel more of a belonging there? Uh, yeah, I think I did. Uh, mainly because, you know, an SJD program is already a step up compared to an LLM. LLM programs have, you know, sometimes hundreds of students. And so for many schools, this is just a source of revenue. And there isn't as much scholarly value in having 200 or 300 LLM students in any given year. Uh, The SJD program at Georgetown was smaller. So it was a total of um, 25 SJD students and every year they would admit like six or seven. Um, so it was a smaller cohort uh, that uh, really made me feel like I belong. Also my work with the Minerva Center at Haifa uh, really kind of established this feeling of belonging because I was feeling very welcome at Georgetown but also the Minerva Center really kind of supported my ideas, my research. They mentored me very well. Uh, they allowed me to present my drafts. Um, so it, it really did feel like I'm actually making progress as a legal scholar. You also mentioned that you were interested in teaching. Did you get a chance to in Georgetown? At Georgetown, I did not get an opportunity to teach. It is an extremely competitive market in Washington, D.C. Um, so, and, and the SJD program didn't really have uh, an opportunity to teach. Uh, but once I moved to Yale Law School as a cyber fellow, uh, I already got involved with teaching the law of cyber conflict course there. So that already kind of gave me the valuable experience of, of teaching before I entered the teaching market, the official full-time teaching market in the United States. And how was Yale? What was the project about there? So the project at Yale... It was a collaboration between Yale Law School, Computer Science Department. It was a two-year project uh, um, funded by the Hewlett Foundation. 
basically looking at the ways in which we can uh, bridge the gaps between the disciplines, law and computer science, in the context of cybersecurity. Uh, there was a growing realization that there is a disconnect, there is a divide between law uh, and the technical fields. So law talks in certain terms and computer science is using totally different languages and totally different term terminology for, um, for cybersecurity. Um, so basically it was a position that allowed me to organize events, bring in speakers, interact with students uh, sometimes if they were interested in the same areas as me and sort of be part of this community which really explored very different things but the common theme was technology so we were all very interested in technology technology regulation uh, artificial intelligence, copyright, cybersecurity. And it was just, you know, a weekly kind of uh, lunch that we had together to discuss ideas, comment on each other's papers. Yeah, so it was just an opportunity to be a real postdoc and explore all these areas that I was interested in but also get exposed to other areas of law and people with other methodologies and other disciplines. Um, yeah, it was just a real postdoc program, uh, everything that you would expect it to be and, and more. That sounds good, that it was what you expected it to be too. That's satisfying sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it was everything that I expected and also a lot more. Uh, because in retrospect, I realized how valuable and enriching that experience was. And I also met so many great people who are now law professors uh, in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, elsewhere. And uh, it's, just, it's just a network that kind of stays with you for, for the rest of your life. And also a support group. Absolutely. All right, because I suppose that you had to move for this position from Washington, D.C. to Yale. Yeah, so that was a full-time residential position. So I was um, at my third year uh, at Georgetown, and uh, I had to move from Washington, D.C. to New Haven, Connecticut, um, which was another major transition from a major city to a small, not a small town, but a small city. And uh, yeah, I had to move there physically. I had to adjust to the life in Connecticut. It was worth it for you. It was definitely worth it. So the next question is really, what happens when you're done with another postdoc? What happens when you're done? I think it's completely up to you. I mean, what what kind of career do you want to pursue? There were some graduates of the postdoc program who went into industry. There were others who wanted more of an academic career, so they went on the job market um, in the respective discipline. Um, so there are a lot of things you, you can do after a postdoc. I guess it, it just depends on what your trajectory was to begin with. So I understand that you were looking into pursuing an academic career. Now, I've heard from a former guest, Rotem, 
Dr. Rotem Rosenberg Rubens, that at least in Israel, it's comparable to becoming an NBA player to land a job, like the one you found as an assistant professor at the University of Tulsa. What do you think? I think that it's not wrong. Um, maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration, but getting a job in the U.S. Legal Academy is, is extremely difficult, especially if you're a foreigner. That makes it even tenfold um, more difficult. Um, so it, w it did feel like hitting the jackpot, basically, winning the, lo winning the lottery, um, because it was so unlikely that I would find a job, uh, but it just happened. Um, and I, I still, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I tell myself, wow, I actually, I am a full-time tenure track member of this U.S. law school. Um, you know, if, we, if you told me that two or three years ago, I just, I wouldn't believe you because, again, the job market in the U.S. is just so brutal that, you know, there's, there's nothing really else to say other than it's brutal and, uh, and, uh, um, and extremely difficult to get a job. Well, I'll toast to that, that at least you found your position. Congratulations. Cheers. Cheers. When did you start in Tulsa? I started in August 2018. So um, last Thursday was actually the last class of my fourth semester, so second year. All right. And tell me a little bit. So between Yale and Tulsa, you just sit down in your room and write an application letter to every university you know for any teaching position out there. Or do you then try and fall back on another postdoc position just in case it doesn't work out? Or like, what is your strategy? Yeah. So the thing with the U.S. Uh, law teaching market is that you need to apply a year in advance. Um, so it takes a whole year to go through the process and potentially get a, a job offer. So while I was at Yale, I had to apply for teaching positions already after my first year there at Yale. So, you know, I, it took me a whole year to prepare all the materials, prepare my job talk paper, prepare my research agenda, notify my recommenders, uh, get advice from all sorts of people who had more experience with the job market in the US. And so basically you, you do that process with all these materials through an organization called AALS. Uh, so it's the American Association of Law School or Association of American Law Schools, AALS. And that's the organization that sort of facilitates the process of the job market in the U.S. So, you, well, you don't really apply directly to each school, uh, but you do this process through the AALS. You submit all your materials, you pay a fee, um, you attend a conference in Washington, D.C., in a hotel where all the hiring law schools are participating at the same time. They're interviewing candidates in their suites. And that's pretty much the process. 
I guess there's a lot more um, happening uh, uh, behind the scenes because that's the straightforward process. You do it through the AALS, you submit your materials, you attend the conference, you attend interviews, but you also need to reach out to specific schools that you're interested in. So let's say you're interested in teaching at Columbia Law School, you have to reach out to Columbia and say, hey, I'm a candidate on the job market this year. My research areas are so-and-so. My teaching interest is so-and-so. I would be very delighted to be interviewed by you at the AALS conference in 2018, 2019. Then they look at your materials and decide if they're interested in interviewing you. Uh, but basically, it's a very time-consuming process. It requires a lot of coordination. Uh, it requires a lot of informal, I would say, interactions. So you need to encourage your recommenders to reach out to people they know at other law schools to say good things about you and say how amazing you are and what sort of uh, cutting-edge research you're engaged in. Use your connections. Use your connections, use someone who's well-known in the community, who can vouch for you, um, who can say good things about you and sort of uh, convince the other school to give you an interview. All right. And it seems that now you're happy with your position. You're in Tulsa for almost two years. Just finished my second year of teaching. Are you comfortable in Tulsa? I am very comfortable, surprisingly, in Tulsa. Uh, you know, before I moved here, I was not even sure where Tulsa was on the map. Like, I, I just, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, but then, you know, they invited me for a callback, which is the step that happens after the interview. So they interview you in Washington, D.C., and then if they're interested, they invite you to visit campus and give a presentation at the law school. Um, so they invited me for the callback, and I just fell in love with the city. It made me realize that there are so many other cities in the United States that are amazing, that people have never heard about. And these are the hidden gems of the United States. And uh, Tulsa was um, a hidden gem for me, so I'm, I, am, I am very happy here. Sounds legit. So knowing what you know now... What are your tips or recommendations on how to tackle a PhD or something you'd have to do to prepare for an academic career? So I would say establish a strong and, and, and friendly relationship with your, with your advisor. That's probably the, the best piece of advice I can give. Um, so Rosa Brooks, who was my advisor at Georgetown, is really the reason why I'm, I'm at Tulsa right now with a full-time tenure-track position. It all starts and ends with your advisor. Um, she was extremely supportive of my research. She was uh, very helpful with my ambitions. She reached out to uh, the relevant people uh, when I was looking for a job. Um, so just, you know, Make sure you impress your advisor. Make sure you, um, you do the right things uh, during your PhD uh, to establish this kind of relationship. And just, you know, find as many mentors as you can. So even if you have a helpful and friendly advisor, you can always make other relationships with other people at other schools 
Um, just find the right people who are just as passionate about your research as as you are. So build that support group. It all comes down to your personal relationships at the end. If you're well known in the community and people have positive views about your research and about you as a person, uh, that really makes a huge difference. And I think a lot of PhD students don't realize how important that is to have this personal relationship with all these people. All right. And then usually my last question is, what is your next project research-wise? I have uh, a couple of um, projects taking place simultaneously, but I think the one I'm most excited about is a project I'm working on with uh, my colleague who teaches at Gonzaga University. His name is Mason Marks. Um, we're working on a project that we call the right to digital self-defense. Um, and basically this is a project that largely responds to privacy law in the United States and how privacy law is currently unable to deal with, with privacy violations. Um, so I would say that we are somewhat privacy skeptics and we're looking at ways in which users can empower themselves to protect themselves from privacy violations. So basically, you know, if you're a user on Facebook, uh, you shouldn't trust Facebook and its data collection processes. You should be able, though, to protect yourself from Facebook and from other uh, data collectors online. You should be able to have the right tools to do that. And you should be protected from discrimination if you were to decide to use tools of digital self-defense. Um, basically, we're promoting an argument that would support such a right. Um, and it's still a project at its very beginning. So um, we have a lot to develop and a lot to discuss, but um, we just published an op-ed on The Hill, um, which is this news outlet about legislative uh, issues, um, where we begin to make the argument in support of this right. So that's my next project, and we are both extremely excited about it. And again, a very timely topic. It was just earlier today that I read that um, in Australia, the government has created this Corona app, right? And that they need 43% of the population to download the app for it to become effective. And that in one day, 1 million Australians had downloaded the app. So you're basically saying that people might want to be a bit more skeptical of these kind of apps? Yeah. So um, that's exactly what our op-ed is responding to. We're responding to all these COVID-19 surveillance apps that are marketed to us by governments and private tech corporations. Um, we're very skeptical of the utility of these apps and primarily the, the cost-benefit analysis of it. So it may help um, fight the coronavirus pandemic, but at the same time, the privacy violation and the widespread surveillance uh, could have a significant long-term 
cost that uh, we think is important to consider. Very interesting. To wrap up, I'd like to ask you another set of short questions. Uh, what was the most important conference that you've been to? I would say uh, Privacy Law Scholars Conference. Uh, so the acronym is PLSC. Uh, it's a very well-known uh, international conference that takes place in the U.S., um, sometimes at Berkeley, sometimes in Washington, D.C. That's really a conference that brings together privacy uh, law scholars from all over the world, uh, and it's quite influential. What scholarship was hardest to get? Hmm. I don't know. There was, I mean, there was a scholarship that I never got uh, from Columbia University. They had an open call for applications for cyber researchers. And I always thought that I had it in the bag because I really, I, I felt like I was the kind of researcher that they were looking for, but I was ultimately rejected. Um, yeah, I worked really hard on that application, never, never really got it. So that happens. Nevertheless, we have to keep trying, right? Rejection is part of the game. It's uh, something you uh, get used to over time and you have to get used to it because academia is just so full of rejections all the time. But it says nothing about your quality as a researcher as a scholar, as a student, it has nothing to do at all because so many of these decisions are being made regardless of merit. Uh, they're being made because, um, because they, liked, they like the subject matter better or because they have a prior experience with that researcher and they really liked him or her. Uh, so you just never really know why a rejection is being made. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to the field? I would say the article that I published with the um, Harvard National Security Journal on election interference got, got quite, quite a lot of attention. Um, and I was surprised by the amount of attention that it got. And I think, you know, it was published back in 2018, but I'm still getting conference invitations and invitations to contribute to books and essay collections based on that article. Um, there's, I think, no other article that I published that got this much attention. Um, again, sometimes you just kind of hit the jackpot. You publish something that people seem to be very interested in, uh, even if you, do, you don't think it's your best piece of work, but people are still going crazy over that one piece that you published three years ago. Congratulations. Thanks. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Mm, yeah, so I, I would probably say um, Rebecca Krutoff, who was the executive director of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School. Uh, she's just an outstanding researcher on law and technology and cyberspace law. And uh, she landed a teaching position at University of Richmond, and she is continuing to do uh, work that is very foundational to the emerging field of law and technology. We'll make sure that she hears this. Sure. How do you relax after a hard day of work? Um, I would say exercise. Just do any sort of active exercise 
that makes you move your body. Um, I rollerblade a lot. Uh, I know it's not the 90s anymore, but I still rollerblade. And we have a beautiful uh, riverside trail in Tulsa, um, which is very scenic and very, very serene. Uh, so that's the kind of activity I would do to relax. Uh, just either run alongside the river or rollerblade or do any other exercise. It's always good to get the activity going to get other stuff out of your system. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I also want to thank our listeners today for coming back. And also do come back to the next episode that will be found in the same link as where you found this one. But also on all other major podcast platforms. So, cheers. One more time. Cheers. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. And I learned a lot about the cyber I have to ask you though, now I've been looking at you through this camera with the background of the Shire. Is this your favorite background on online conversations or did you use other ones as well? I used many other backgrounds. It's just that the Shire was the last background I used for my class. So I just never got to change it. But I had other backgrounds as well. I had the background from The Office. I had a background from Harry Potter. Um, I had a bunch of other backgrounds. Let's see what I have. 